Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. If you don't have uh, a copy of the Scriptures, if you would like a Bible, in the middle section in the back, we've got some Bibles. Lynn is heading there now. We'd love to give you a Bible, uh, so please head back there, grab one. Um, if you don't like human interaction, you can wait for Lynn to walk away and then go grab one. No one will talk to you or anything like that. That's okay. Some people don't like talking to people, and that's great. Um, safe place for you. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 23, and we're going to end in chapter 9, verse 17. So we're going to read a pretty good chunk this morning. So Matthew 8, 23, read God's word with me. And when he got into the boat, he being Jesus, his disciples followed him. And there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over, came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then turned and said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled. 
and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. God, this is your word, and we want to receive it as such. It's a word with all authority that also has the ability to speak into our lives in this moment. So please, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. Lead us and guide us into the life that only Jesus can offer. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Today, uh, in our world, authority is on trial. Authority's been abused, and it's become uh, a popular story to tell the abuse of authority, and rightfully so. If someone's in authority and decides to abuse their authority, we ought to tell that story. That person ought not to be in any sort of authority, exposing the vulnerable, taking advantage of those underneath them. But Authority is also on trial in our own hearts because I think sometimes we want to grasp after authority. We see the advantages that authority can bring and maybe we want those for ourselves. Or maybe we've seen authority abused and we think to ourselves, I don't want to trust anybody else's authority. I'll just take it for myself, thank you. But authority is on trial. We don't trust authority maybe as naturally as other generations but I think scripture is, is trying to tell us a story about the authority of Jesus without throwing authority out. We learn some surprising things about the authority of Jesus. And I think what's most amazing that we'll see in all of these verses this morning is that the authority of Jesus is reason to rejoice. The authority of Jesus is reason to rejoice. I'd like to organize the message this morning around three questions. First, who is this man? And then, who are these people? And then, who are those people? First, who is this man? That, that's kind of what we see the people asking who come in contact with the authority and the power of Jesus. Notice in these first three stories that tell miracles, notice how uh, Jesus is showing his authority over three distinct realms of the world. First, we see Jesus' authority over the natural. We see Jesus' authority over the natural things. They're on a boat and there's a storm. And the disciples are freaking out. They don't feel safe. If you've ever experienced uh, the full forces of nature, you realize there's a lot of things that we as human beings can have authority over and bring safety from. And nature just seems to not be one of those things. That we can't really fully protect ourselves from. When nature rears its ugly head to the fullest power and extent, uh, there's really nothing that we can do but hunker down and hope for the best. And that's what's happening in the storm on this boat. There's a huge storm in this sea that's kind of known for storms to come out of the blue. And I love to see the posture of Jesus in the storm. While the disciples are awake and freaking out, Jesus is sleeping. And we'll notice the posture of Jesus as he faces these challenges here because as he faces a storm and we see his authority over the natural, he's sleeping. But in the next story, we see Jesus' authority over the supernatural. He comes face to face with two demon-possessed men. And we read from the story that the whole city stayed away from there, these, where these men were. It says no one could pass that way. But Jesus looked right into the face of darkness. So when Jesus is faced with all the full force of natural forces of nature uh, and the storm on the sea that human beings could do nothing to calm but just ride it out, Jesus is fast asleep in peace. When Jesus comes face to face with the supernatural, 
demon-possessed men that so terrified an entire city that they stayed away, Jesus approaches and looks them in the face. And then last, we see Jesus' authority over the spiritual. We see a paralytic come, and when we all carry not just the external burdens of our life, but the internal burdens of guilt and shame that we can't do anything about on our own. Jesus, again, speaks a healing word to it, and we see Jesus' all-encompassing, absolute authority in these verses. And as Jesus is displaying his authority, we find this question. They, they ask it in verse 27 after he calms the storm. What sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? Who is this man? In a time when there's major question mark over authority, when we see someone display this kind of authority, we say, what sort of man is this? I think what happens today when we see authority, some people want to hitch their wagon to it and see how they can posture it to help their platform or their cause, right? If we see someone that just has authority and can build a crowd and start a movement, we say, well, how can we use this for good? What sort of man, though, is this? What sort of man has this kind of authority? What sort of person, who is this man that speaks a word and the storm calms down, that speaks one word and demons flee, that speaks a word and can forgive sin? But what's amazing about the spiritual authority that Jesus shows is he has to take a bit of an extra step for proof, though, right? And he asks a very interesting question. He, he speaks to the paralytic, very obvious need, right? cannot walk so he's carried to Jesus the obvious need is he cannot walk so the obvious solution is Jesus make him walk heal him and Jesus looks and says your sins are forgiven it's very intentional by Jesus so he gets the religious people talking this is blasphemy he's defaming the holy name of God by claiming that he can do something that only God can do Jesus is setting him up and he knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're saying. He knows that they're doubting him and they're saying, this is blasphemy. So knowing their thoughts, he responds, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? What's well, easier to say your sins are forgiven? Because there's no uh, visual proof of whether or not that happens, right? I could say your sins are forgiven, but you're not really gonna know if that's true or not. But if I tell you to rise and walk, it's gonna be very obvious whether or not my words carried any power based on whether or not you actually rise and walk. So he says that you may know, this is chapter nine, verse six, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he's speaking to them, that you might know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralytic and says, rise and walk. In other words, let this miracle be proof to you because it's more difficult to say this, let this be proof that his sins really are forgiven. We see the authority of Jesus over the natural, over the supernatural, and over the spiritual. And every time, he doesn't flinch. He's asleep when others are awake and freaking out. He approaches the thing that's caused a whole city to flee. And he offers proof in the paralytic that he really can forgive sins. But the authority of Jesus is only part of the story. Right? They were amazed. When we say, who is this man? It's because they were amazed by his works. But the next question, who are these people? 
They might have been amazed by his works, but they were scandalized by his company. What had happened was he showed his incredible authority and power. And they were amazed. The religious people are keeping a close watch on him. But then it says, as he passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He's a tax collector. And he says, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table, he's eating. Very intimate to eat meals together in the first century. Many tax collectors and sinners. I love the categories that the gospels use. If you want to know one tip to read and and apply uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to your life, it's a story. So part of what you're invited to do is figure out who are you identifying with as the characters, okay? If you always identify with Jesus, you're reading it wrong. You are not Jesus in the Gospels, okay? And, And I love the categories of, okay, tax collectors. Okay, here's what they did. They collected taxes for Rome. So they were not, you know, people weren't huge fans of them. Extortion, uh, They were thieves. They would take way more than they should have taken and pocket. I mean, all sorts of stuff. People did not like tax collectors. Who else was with them? Just generic sinners. And that always makes me laugh a little bit because I'm like, what kind? Like we read of other kinds of sin, like, okay, they were stealing or like we we see him heal like prostitutes and things like that. And then it's just like, just all kinds of just filthy sinners were there. Like any, in particular, like just all kinds, just buffet of sinners. (laughs) And it says Jesus is sitting at this table with people that can't be described any more specifically than just sinners. And the Pharisees see it and they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the first question they ask is, who is this man? But then when we see Jesus, not just with that kind of authority, but we see his company, say, who are these people? I mean, it's like you don't expect to see a billionaire uh, waiting in the security line at the airport. You you figure he's got another way to get where he's going. He doesn't have to wait with the common people, right? And there's almost this separation of classes of people. And, you know, it's interesting. I was sitting at Starbucks right here, uh, Gordy Parkway, Sandy Plains, um, right before New Year's, working on a little bit of sermon, uh, getting ready to come up here and meet with some people about the building, and I'm sitting there, and you know, you never expect to see anybody famous ever. And I'm sitting at this Starbucks, and I'm sitting at the community table right where they announce drinks, and I see a guy standing there, and I say to myself, that is Luke Jackson, the pitcher for the Braves. If you're a Braves fan, Slider Man, okay? Great pitcher. He's a relief pitcher, which means he throws like 70 times a year and gets paid millions of dollars. Great gig if you're looking to train up your kids for a career. <laughs> teach them to throw with their left hand, and it's pretty good. And I'm going, I think that's him. He's a relief pitcher. They're like, I don't see him that often. He was hurt all last year. His beard's all growing out. I'm like, but you just never expect to see somebody like that in that environment. So I'm totally not like confident at all that this, that's who it is. And you're like, there's no way. I mean, he's a professional baseball player. Like they got their own Starbucks somewhere. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm at Starbucks. They're going to call his name. And there's no way he'd give him a fake name. He's not that famous, right? So I'm sitting there and just kind of working away and I kind of forget about it. There was a long line and so I'm, I'm sitting there working and sure enough, they go, Luke? And I went, that's Luke, that really is him. And so I jump up and I said, I said, what's your name? And he says, uh, Luke. And I said, are you Luke Jackson? And he kind of smiled like, yeah, I'm a relief pitcher. No one's ever recognized me in public before. And uh, it was just a cool moment. I took a picture as proof that I saw Luke Jackson. He told me that he was gonna be playing for the Giants and I get online and start looking and I was like, 
hey, nobody's announced that yet. Do I break the news? Do I tell everyone? Should I call the Braves? Do they pay me for this information? I don't know. But it was this like kind of famous professional athlete. And you think like, what are you doing here at Starbucks with us? Like you drink this stuff too. This is crazy. There's an expectation that a certain level of people, a certain class of people doesn't mix with another class, right? So when we see Jesus with all this authority eating with these people, he, that's a scandal. Why, why, why? Jesus, you have all of this authority and you would choose, you could have dinner with anybody. Well, why these people? Don't you know who they are? Don't you know what they've done? And the response of Jesus sums up everything that we believe. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, now listen to the illustration he gives right before that. Chapter nine, verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come for those people who understand their need. Jesus doesn't have any interest in surrounding himself with people who've built a great resume, with people that can help his social status, with people that can insulate him from just those needy sinners and tax, golly, they're just, they're scum, they're awful. Do you know what they've done? Do you understand their story? Do you realize that like nobody likes them? You're not gonna get anywhere by hanging out with people like that. Jesus says, I know, that's exactly why I've come. For people just like that. Jesus' invitation in Matthew 9 and 12, what character do we see ourselves as? Sometimes I think we're the disciples, or we like to think we're the disciples, because in a lot of these stories, the disciples are pretty neutral. Like, they're just there, like, watching. Like, I don't know. Oh, it's a good question, Jesus. Like, what are, you, what are we doing here? And they, they might not know. I mean, a lot of them were Jewish, right? So, like, they're following Jesus, and, like, they're spending time with the tax collectors, and they're like, this is a great question, Jesus. Why are we here? But, but maybe we're not the disciples. Maybe we're on the other side of the table, and we're like the religious leaders, Right, and we're looking at the table of Jesus. We're looking at the community of Jesus and say, Jesus, you couldn't do any better than this? Why would we ever welcome a person like this into the family of God? Don't you know what they've done? Don't you know what he's done, she's done? Don't you know their story? But maybe, maybe if God can give us the grace to see ourselves as the tax collectors and sinners, we are blown away that we are sharing a table with the one with absolute authority. That he looks at you. And when someone asks such a foolish question, like why are you eating with them? Before he responds, I like to imagine Jesus looked at the tax collectors and sinners and says, don't, don't listen to them. I want to be here. I want to know you. I love you. And then he turns and he says, those who are well don't need to go see a doctor. They're healthy. But the sick need the physician. Hey, I didn't come for the righteous. I've come for the sinners. So the implication being, who are these people? I hope it's me and you. I hope we are these people who recognize our need to come to Jesus. 
because that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. If you think you don't have a need, Jesus is not for you. But if by the grace of God we can humble ourselves to recognize the need we have, Jesus stands ready to meet our every need. And he can do it, right? I mean, this is an amazing use of authority. That he would have all authority, yet use it by stooping low to meet the needs of others. That is authority worth following. That is authority worth submitting to. It is not bad to be an authority. Your kids ever tell you they don't want you to be in charge? My kids don't ever say that. If they did, I might imagine that I would possibly respond by saying, do you realize all the benefits you get by me being in charge? It's so easy to remind my kids of that, right? Like you're laying down a rule and they're like, I don't want the rule, therefore I don't want you. Be out of my life. I do not want an authority in my life. You're not in charge of me. Well, if I'm not in charge of you, like don't eat dinner, find your own ride to school, find your own house, find your own toys, find your, you just go down the list. It's like, there's, there's probably at some point a healthy way to have a conversation like that. It's not out of anger or spite. And I can lift my nose up like I'm reminding my kids of something that should be so obvious. And then the kids leave the room and God's like, hey, like you might want to think about that for yourself. Like, hey, you, you, you need authority. I mean, thankfully, my authority stoops down here with you that you're an awful parent in this moment, and like, I'm, I'm here. And I can remind my kids of that in such pride and immediately be humbled by Jesus saying, do you realize I'm the one with all authority that you think you don't need, but I actually use my authority to stoop down with you in your need, to see you and to love you there? So in this narrative, this is why we packed all of these stories together. Because I think when you remove the headers from your Bible and you read all of these verses from chapter 8, verse 23 through chapter 9, verse 17, you get this juxtaposition of authority over the natural and the supernatural and the spiritual. And then you go, when he uses all that authority to do what? To eat with these people? But then the, it's not over because after that it says the disciples of John, John the Baptist, those disciples come and they pull Jesus aside. So we've seen who is this man, who are these people that we're eating with, and then the disciples of John go, hey, who are those people that are following you? Why are they not fasting? Like, we fast. I mean, heck, the Pharisees fast. So who do they think they are? <laughs> who are those people? Who are your followers? That they think they don't need to fast. And then Jesus gives this kind of convoluted teaching. I was raised Southern Baptist, so we ripped this out because it talked about wine and we didn't know what to do with it. And so we, we were kind of like, I don't know, Jesus didn't talk about wine, so neither is the new grape juice put into old grape juice buckets. We didn't know what to do with this. I didn't know what to do with this passage. What, what does it mean, new wine and old wineskins? And what is Jesus talking about? And he's talking about a wedding and the bridegroom and not mourning while they're there. 
part of what Jesus is saying to John in all of these things, the, the point, the bottom line is this. I've come to bring something totally new. And when I bring this something totally new, it is reason to rejoice. Fasting is this, um, this thing, it, it will not be in heaven with us because there will be nothing to fast for. But in this world, we fast because we're longing for God to come and do something, to make things right, to answer a prayer, to make things right in the world, to bring justice where there's injustice. We fast because we're mourning something that's wrong or something that's broken, some sin in our life, some broken relationship. And Jesus is saying, hey, I've come and I've come to make all things new and that's a reason to rejoice. And the disciples of John didn't fully understand that, remember, because John's ministry was to point towards the Messiah. And we're gonna talk in a couple weeks about how John the Baptist, as great as he was and he was a prophet, he still had these doubts about who Jesus was. We're gonna look at different ways people received Jesus. There's unbelief, there's doubt, there's just this full faith we see in some people. And I think you see it here in the followers of John, like they didn't really know what to do with Jesus. They were fasting, saying, God, send your Messiah, send the Christ, send the one who's gonna make all things new. And then they come to Jesus and they're saying, your disciples, what's up? Why aren't they fasting? And Jesus is saying, because I'm here. Because the one with all authority has arrived and I'm showing you my authority, but then I'm also showing you my authority in the way that I stoop and I spend time with these tax collectors and sinners. What we see is that the authority of Jesus is reason to rejoice. So I wonder for us today, do we rejoice at the authority of Jesus? Not that we have someone that always fits our agenda or always tells us what we wanna hear or someone that's in charge to kind of stomp out all the things we disagree with. That's not the kind of authority we're talking about. And we're also not talking about someone who only stoops to where we are and has no authority, right? That's like almost helpful. Thank you for having pity on me and trying to comfort me, but you don't really have any authority to bring any change to my life. We're talking about the one with absolute, the one whose voice commands the winds and the waves because he created them the one who commands the demons and they flee. The one who looks at a paralytic and sees through the obvious outer need to the deeper inner need of sin and has the authority to forgive that sin. That is the one that invites us to his table. That is the one who has come in the person of Jesus. That is the one who has given us reason to rejoice. Let's pray. God, we love you. And uh, I don't know, sometimes I feel bad when I don't have more specific application, but for me, looking at the authority of Jesus and Jesus seeing how you want to go spend time with tax collectors and sinners, it prods my heart simply to say, how do I see myself? Christ, forgive me for thinking that, that I think I bring like a ton to the table 
to be one of your followers. That you're blessed to have me on the team and that I'm here to offer all my talents and skills and we're going to do great things together. But actually, like, I'm sick and I'm coming to the doctor and you're healing me. I'm the paralytic that's being dragged to the presence of King Jesus. And Jesus, you are speaking a word of healing over me, not just my body, but my soul. So Jesus, help us to see ourselves like that so that we can be on the receiving end of your goodness and your grace. And therein lies your glory. Your glory is not just found simply in the power and the bigness and the authority or simply in your grace and your presence and that you're near to us. Your glory is found in the mixture of both of those. And Jesus, that is why we worship you. That is why we can worship you because it was those things that made you come and save us. So we do sing what we sang earlier. Oh, praise the name. You are worthy of our praise. Help us to behold this wondrous mystery of who you are. I'd like to give you, uh, church family, just a, just a minute, just to think on the text this morning and ask the Lord what he would like to speak to your heart from this word and receive from God. Christ, Speak to our hearts. We want your word. We want you to lead us. We want to receive you for all that you are. And this passage encourages us to come to you just as we are. Because there's nothing about us that's so sick or so sinful that is going to put you off. But you've come to call sinners. So we can admit full well how sinful we really are. It's in your name we pray.